broadcasting from the city of brotherly love, Philadelphia to around the globe. You're listening to Shark Bite Biz, your exclusive place for business strategy, sales, marketing, and tech in the roaring 20s. And now, here's your host, David Strausser. I'm your kicking host, David Strausser, and it's time for another epic episode of Shark Bite Biz, your place to learn how to grow a business during complete chaos. Another week and another awesome show. Today, we're going to talk about a pretty awesome topic, obviously, malware, malvertising, and ransomware. While we are all digitally transforming and working from home, new threats are looking to take every penny we got, both what we have personally and the businesses that we represent. There's a lot of creative people out there that are just flat out bad. It goes back to the ages old cat and mouse game with good people chasing the bad ones because the bad ones are always going to be a step ahead. You're always playing catch up and it is hard to prevent sometimes what you don't know even exists. But that being said, there are some obvious tell signs of what you can see floating around that can kind of tip you off like, hey, this might not be so kosher and give you some ways to actually protect yourself. So we're going to talk about the type of impacts that COVID-19 has had on these malvertising attacks. And we'll hear from an expert themselves about which industries have been targeted the most, especially since the overall demand for advertising has impacted the advertising threat levels. So who do we got as today's guest? None other than Matt Gillis. Matt is the CEO of Clean.io, a digital engagement security company that protects websites and e-commerce merchants by protecting their revenue and their user experience. So without further delay, let's bring Matt on in here. Business strategy. Matt, welcome to Shark Bite Biz. We're so glad to have you here today. Hey, thanks for having me. We're uh, we're super excited. Tell our story. Oh yeah, yeah. I can't wait to hear it. So, very first question. You know, on this show, we have a tradition. Okay, it's a softball question. Tell us, who is Matt Gillis? What's your experience? What's your background? What do you do? What's your job? Tell us all about you. Awesome. Uh, well, so yeah, I'm Matt Gillis. I'm the CEO of a company called Clean.io. Uh, we're a cybersecurity company based in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'll tell you a little bit about what we do and how I got there. But uh, yeah, listen, I've been in the media business and, and in the mobile business pretty much my entire career. So about 20 years or so uh, in mobile. I started in the early days uh, working for wireless carriers. Uh, so I worked for Bell Mobility out of Canada. And then I came down to the yeah. States and worked for uh, Verizon Wireless. Uh, and, and a lot of the things that I've done throughout my career, specifically back to the early, I would say to almost 2000, is uh, while I was working at the operator, I was launching a bunch of the services uh, of all that you do on your cell phone, uh, except make phone calls. So all of the things that you live on now, I was doing back in, call it like 2000 to 2003. 
uh, things like oh, playing yeah. games, things like downloading music, downloading ringtones, if you remember those days. Oh, yeah. Um, I, I was the same way. I was an early adopter with the Windows mobile phone. I think it was, what was it, Windows mobile, like CE or something like that. Yeah, yeah, I had and, one of those. And people always made fun of me, like, oh, you have what it, I'm like, dude, this is like a computer in my hand and I can make phone calls. Yeah, well, I, I, listen, I started working at the wireless carriers when uh, the phones were basically like bricks. If you remember how big yeah, they were, like yeah, the first yeah, Motorola yeah. phone. And I thought I was cool because, you know, this is in, in the 90s. I, I got to put that phone in my back pocket and walk around the shopping mall, uh, you know, and I was the only one of my friends who had it because it was free. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I worked at the wireless operators in those early days. And, and then I got the entrepreneurial bug to really go out and and, and take a, I would say a little bit of a risk. Um, I was part of a early stage mobile games company uh, back in, in the early 2000s. We made games like who wants to be a millionaire? Are you smarter okay. than a fifth grader? Like a lot of TV game shows. Um, and we sold that company to a Japanese video game uh, conglomerate called Capcom. Uh, they made oh, Street Fighter and Resident Evil and all that sort of stuff. But they they <laughs> yeah. were really looking, uh, they knew that mobile was going to be important and they were looking for someone that really understood uh, the casual side of mobile. They knew that mobile right. was going to be casual and all of their intellectual property was hardcore. So so went there and ran that business for a while, then went to the mobile ads business as as mobile games. It became really hard to get people to pay for things. Uh, yeah. I had this inkling that 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 ads was going to be an inter integral part of how publishers and developers would monetize. So I went to a startup called Millennial Media, rode that wave, uh, which was a rocket ship. We took public on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, we eventually yeah. sold that company to Verizon. And part of my challenges in that ads business was that there were ads that were destroying the user experiences and destroying revenue and monetization for, for publishers. And, and in the role that I had, uh, you know, we really didn't have any solutions. And so now I'm the yeah. CEO of a company that solves, you know, among many things, they solve that problem. It's called malvertising. If you're on a phone and you're scrolling and it says, uh, it's all of a sudden your screen gets taken over and says, you know, congratulations, you've won an Amazon gift card or yeah. your phone has 33 viruses, click here. That's called malvertising. And so our company solves that problem. And then we've got a couple of new pro products in development that I can tell you about. But, uh, you know, I've had this kind of awesome, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, I'm chain smoking like one great opportunity after the next. And, yeah. uh, you know, it yeah. just keep, keep getting better as we go. You know, you just took me through like an emotional joyride of all the tech I think I've experienced in the last 20 years, you know, hearing some of the things that you've been through, you know, and ads is interesting, especially when you start getting into games, mobile devices and stuff. It, it was true. I, I think it was especially true in the early days that people didn't want to pay for games and you needed some way to, to monetize it. And I think ads was, you know, the logical way to go. And it drives, and you still see this sometimes today with some apps, but it drives me nuts when you get in a free app and there is nothing but like the malvertising that you're talking about. That That is, that's one of the quickest things that'll make me uninstall an app in this day and age. Yeah, it's it's a it's a painful problem, and that's uh, you know for us it's a bit of a passion project because we mm -hmm. we have empathy, we experienced it not just as a user but as a, a operator of a business. Yeah. It's interesting in, in you know in my career I've seen you know uh, the 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 business models change along the way. In my earliest days in the games business, um, customers were indeed paying for games. So when when we okay. were selling Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, uh, I wasn't, and that was uh, you know that was through <laughs> Verizon Wireless. 
uh, customers would pay a two dollar ninety nine cent monthly subscription, and and right. make a lot of money. Um, right. But I, when I the iPhone came that. out. Yeah. Yeah. The i the iPhone changed everything, right? So like the iPhone, mm-hmm. you know, democratized access. Any app developer could get any app live, and and you know you could find an audience. And and obviously in the early days there weren't millions and millions of apps, uh, but if you kind of you know charged forward on that gold rush, you had an opportunity. Um, we actually at at Capcom we did some of the most innovative stuff in the early days of what was called in-app purchases. If you're you know right. you know what that is now, it's like yep. free. They call them freemium, free game. Uh, you can yep. buy things. And and the first game that we launched uh, with in-app purchases at Capcom was this game called The Smurfs Village. Uh, and if you Google it, you can read all about it. But it is the reason that parental controls uh, were actually installed uh, on iOS devices. Because what we were doing is, wow. is we, well, if you think about it, the, the Smurfs Village was basically Farmville. If you remember Farmville. Right. Yeah, it yeah. Popular game. Mm-hmm. It was Farmville with blue people. All right. So we took, we basically, <laughs> and in the games business, there's no new ideas. There's just variations on old ideas. Right. right? And uh, so we took Farmville with Smurfs and made the Smurfs Village. Uh, and it was free. So it was freemium. And the way that we monetized was we would sell these things called Smurf berries. And, right. uh, lo and behold, there were no parental controls in those days. Cause this is the early days of the iPhone and parents were downloading the game. It was like the virtual babysitter and then handing it to the back seat to their kids. And the kids were like literally pounding right. buying like bushels of Smurf berries to the tune of like $99 a bushel. Um, wow. and you can read about it. There was uh, you know, whole litigation and, uh, no, Apple I, 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 controls. now that you're saying that it does ring a bell. I mean, mobile stuff like that's one of my personal passions. I mean, I read, I probably have read in gadget every single day for, I don't know, the past 10, 15 years. I very rarely that I miss a day and, you know, mobile gaming, even even though I'm not gaming as much today, I still like to know about the industry trends, where that technology is going, because, I mean, if you look at something like Xbox with their Kinect, I mean, while the Kinect wasn't a big hit on Xbox, I mean, that technology actually has real world uses that has changed a lot of industries, too. And I, I don't know, I, I just always kind of fell in love with that. So yep. let's let me ask you the first topic of, of discussion here is with, you know, we got this global pandemic going on. I don't know if you've heard about it. I, I know you're calling in try not to read the today. News, but yeah, 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 try not to read the yeah. news. But yeah, I've heard something about this thing. Yeah. And we're in this weird thing. I've been saying since about August, it looks like we're at the tail end of this. And uh, here we are recording this interview in November and I don't even see an end of it now. So how has this virus, has COVID-19 affected the malvertising landscape? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So maybe I'll take a step back and and articulate to your audience kind of what it is and how it works. And then you'll understand the dynamics of how COVID, but so basically, you know, malvertising is um, you know, it's the existence of malicious ads, right? So generally what happens is, is a, a bad actor is buying ads on websites and using that as a Trojan horse to either infect the device or to uh, create an engagement that is monetizable for them. Think of bad actors as the most sophisticated performance marketers on the planet. And so what they're doing is is they've figured out how to buy an ad and in a a real brand advertiser, when they buy those ads on your mobile phone or on your your laptop, they're gonna pay, call it like a dollar for 1000 impressions. 
And they would hope that right CPM. Yep. Yep. They would hope a cost per million cost per meal. But what they're hoping is that if they can get a half a percentage to actually click on those ads, like that's success for a, for a brand advertiser. So a half a point, um, a malvertiser has figured out how to buy that same ad, you know, a dollar for a thousand and actually get it to automatically click itself. And they get a thousand engagements, not just, you know, call it 50. And so, um, so if you fast forward to the pandemic, what we saw um, across the internet, our code is running right now on about 7 million sites. Um, and uh, we behaviorally analyzed tens of, um, tens of billions of, uh, of ads per month. What we saw was, um, as you know, in March, when the pandemic hit, the economy kind of took a pause, right? You couldn't go to restaurants, yeah. you couldn't travel, uh, you couldn't fly on airplanes, you couldn't stay in hotel rooms. Most people were locked down. Couldn't get your two-day um, prime delivery. <laughs> well, I don't know. Amazon did. I think Amazon did a pretty good job. But they did pretty good. Be- it, yeah. Yeah. All good. that being said, uh, many big brand advertisers paused, right? So they stopped mm-hmm. their spending, and. When big advertisers stop their spending, obviously, what we're the the ecosystem that we live and breathe in is a supply and demand ecosystem, right? And so, when uh, supply is high and demand is low, obviously, prices come down, and and vice versa. When you know when you get constrained on supply, prices go up. Mm -hmm. So, when a whole bunch of like really bellwether brands pull their money back, pricing came way down, fill rate came way down, and what that did was that created an opportunity for bad actors. Think of bad actors as performance advertisers, as I said. What they're going to do is when they have an opportunity uh, to increase their ROI, to increase their profitability, they're going mm-hmm. to spend. And so what was we saw threat levels in the early days of the pandemic, generally speaking from mid-March to about mid-May, significantly increase, where bad actors now were conducting more activities. Uh, and a lot of what they do is... You know, like, like, think of it like bounty based uh, ads, right? So right. it may say, um, you know, uh, click here if you're a Comcast customer. They know you're a Comcast customer because they actually the um, address. They target it. Yeah, they targeted you as an, a, a Wi-Fi on Comcast and they're doing Comcast surveys. Now, Comcast right. is paying someone to conduct surveys. They probably wouldn't be thrilled to know that this is how they're getting their survey results, but this is one of the ways that these affiliate offers kind of get, you know, traded and mm-hmm. traded and retraded and they end up, you know, with their brand, you know, taking over your screen and you can't hit the back button and you can't hit close. And as you said, you, you probably never go back to that app or that site again, because you're just so frustrated right. with the experience. Oh yeah, definitely. Definitely. And just for clarity sake, I mean, for our listeners out there that might not be super technologically sophisticated, Malvertising is different than things like ransomware and stuff like that, but malvertising can lead to getting ransomware on your device, correct? Yeah, generally speaking, you know, like they're using the openness of programmatic media, which is basically Mm -hmm. the buying and selling and the automation. Think of it like the stock exchange for mobile ads, right? So they're using that openness where anybody can go and get a you know a, a, a seat on a demand side platform, a DSP, to mm-hmm. actually create a campaign, and they can buy across, you name it. Like every site on the internet is seeking uh, to monetize. So, right. um, so yeah, so you know uh, uh, the malicious ad is really just that Trojan horse to have that engagement with the end user. Um, and and what it can was take DSP a variety- again? 
sorry, I had missed that. DSPs DSP? is, a, is an acronym for a demand side platform. Okay. Uh, and so there's lots of companies out there. I mean, Google has a demand side platform. Uh, the Trade Desk is another uh, you know, very popular demand side platform. Okay. And it's just, a, it's just basically software for you to be able to go and buy ads if you're an advertiser. Okay. Okay. So with malvertising, I mean, one of the things I think we've all had is a scammer like help desk. Oh, your computer has seven viruses. Call us. And then you're talking to somebody like out in India or wherever. Um, this is one of malvertising that is the stuff that will lead to those types of opportunities as well too right absolutely and and, okay. and it may be it may be click to call like so think of it as uh i go i keep going back to that like they are performance advertisers mm -hmm. so go back to that like how do performance uh, performance advertisers try to drive performance well obviously they're trying to create that first engagement and then there's a call to action and that action right. may be click here and it you know initiates a phone call to a call center somewhere where they try and tell you that your you know your your windows is out of date and you need to pay yeah. them and like that sort yeah. of thing um by the way it could also be something as simple as is clicking you into the app store to download a VPN app or some other piece of software um, where they're getting paid a bounty for every download that they uh, that they generate. So like all of these interactions are monetizable and it, it really you know can take any flavor. It's just that initial action of like how they buy that ad, how they inject malicious right. JavaScript to take over your experience and then force you to either engage or you abandon. And you know, folks like you and I are are somewhat smart. I, I'll, I'll yeah. give you more credit than me, but you generally <laughs> wouldn't engage with the, you generally wouldn't engage with those kind of experiences. You kind of like no. if it looks like a duck and walks like a duck, quacks like a duck. You're like, yeah, right. this, this seems bad. I've said but away from my it. mom, my mom, like she may look at these things. And by the way, sometimes they spend a ton of money and time and effort on making the creative look very legitimate. And oh, yeah. in oftentimes it spoofs like it, you know, just it spoofs, spoofs the, the user. Email. Oh, yeah. Or it looks, it looks like a Facebook page or it looks like a Netflix page. And generally speaking, there's probably a smelling mistake somewhere in there or a grammar mistake. Yep. If you actually read it, you're like, okay, that's why it's not real. But, you know, so yeah, yep. they, they're spending yep. a lot of time and effort on making them look incredibly legitimate. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I will admit I got, this was through email. It wasn't advertising, but I got one for our voicemail system that luckily the antivirus caught it. But usually when someone leaves me for Vision 33, my day job, they leave me a voicemail, it will go to my email and it looked legit, legit, legit. Like we have flags on our emails that say, hey, this came from outside the organization, watch out. It wasn't even flagged. I don't know what wow. they did. I click it and then it was like, oh my God, I got caught here. Uh, they, they got me that luckily the, the, I think we use trend micro on the work computers that it was caught it, didn't install it. I didn't realize even that it was installing anything. Cause it looked like it was an audio file when I clicked on it. So, uh, that is rare that that happens, but they are getting a lot smarter with how they get around. And, you know, I have to do this because there is this one Twitch streamer, YouTuber that I listen to, his name's Kip Boga, and he actually goes out against, you know, he looks for those advertising people and he turns the scam around on them. 
and waste their time and stuff like that. And it's it's really it, it's entertaining. It's funny, and I I I have to give him a shout out because I'm a huge fan of his channel. But anyways, uh, so how does malvertising actually impact publisher revenue and subscriber churn then? What kind of so, negative impact does that have? So you just said to me earlier in, in the podcast that when, you know, if you're on a site and that happens, you probably never go back to that site. Right. Um, as you know, uh, content is king. And when you create content, it's very expensive. And when you right. try and drive users to your website to uh, consume that content, that's also expensive. This so podcast now is very expensive. I'm, I assume high, <laughs> high production values. Um, yes, high but production. Like, you know, these publishers are trying to create this flywheel, right? Where like you create content, you spend money to drive users to your site, and then you monetize. And what happens with malvertising is, is that uh, it messes up that entire uh, loop right. of monetization. And so uh, you'll see user churn. Um, you'll see, for instance, um, you know, most publishers have a, have a very predictable revenue model. They know that you know, if they drive X amount of page views, they'll serve X amount of ads per user because that user will spend X amount of time on site. Uh -huh. And usually when you're under attack, all of those KPIs will actually start to be impacted. So if someone had an average of eight minutes in time on site, that eight minutes generally would go down to one minute. If average ads per user was 42 over that session duration, that also gets impacted. So you see that full economic uh, impact um, that is you know, obviously destructive. And then there's mm -hmm. the reputation risk, which is like, oh, yeah. you know, no one wants to go to uh, the, you know, the most trusted name in news and have a really crappy experience. Right. And right. so, you know, you've got to be able to, you know, if you're, if you're going to spend money to create content and drive users to your site, you've got to give them a great user experience. And so and that's paramount. That's where there's a lot of companies. Okay. So let's just say I'll, I'll use my podcast as, as an example. If I had ads on sharkbitebiz.com, okay, I could technically be innocent in this as far as I'm not aware that the ads that are being put out are the malvertising ads or would I have to willingly be the person putting it out there? No, the, I think the only person who is willingly participating in this is the bad actor who is buying the right. ads, right? That mm -hmm. would be like uh, blaming, blaming the bank teller uh, for the bank robbery unless they were, unless it was an inside job, they're not in on it, right? Like they're, they're like, Hey, they just happen to be working at the branch that day. Um, right. so yeah, no, it's really, um, now if you know, you have a problem, obviously you, you probably see it in some of your, your, your KPIs, um, your users, if you have a problem, they'll tell you, if you go to Twitter and you search ad redirect and Mm -hmm. you you know run a, a quick search you'll see countless users with their frustration taking screenshots and saying hey site xyz.com get you know this under control and the reality is is you know most folks need a partner like us to actually help them get that under control because you know it's in some cases it's like searching for a needle in a haystack if you're you know if you've got you know, millions of ads on your, on your page every day. I don't know mm -hmm. how much traffic you have, but you know, big sites have, you know, like millions, millions. tens of millions of ads, right? <laughs> there you go. So, but to try and find, and generally speaking, these malvertisers, they're not throttling at, you know, a hundred percent all the time. Again, I go back to the bank robber, um, you know, analogy, you know, bank robbers aren't robbing every bank in every city every day. And if right. they're really smart, they're going to be strategic. And so they're going to like, very much they're going to pick their spots uh, and do everything in their power to not get caught. 
in the, the, the behavior of a malvertiser, like probe, try and buy very few impressions, frequency cap, don't run more than one impression per user because what you want to make it is so that if it happened to you, that it's not mm -hmm. easily reproducible. If it's easily reproducible, right. you're caught. So it's, it's almost right. like leaving your, you're leaving your fingerprints at a crime scene. So right. the, the smartest of malvertisers are not only like, uh, you know, being very, uh, you know, strategic in how they buy ads, but they're being very smart in, in how they uh, ultimately don't leave fingerprints behind. In some cases, malvertisers will buy ads, but not execute their code. They may right. fingerprint to go, okay, uh, do we think we're in a scanning lab uh, and we're in an offline environment and someone is trying to catch us? If so, don't execute the payload. So they have a mm -hmm. ton of that sort of uh, you know, um, uh, code in there to really uh, make sure that they don't get caught. And so that's okay. the whole game. It's, it's a bit of a cat and mouse game. Here, let me ask you this then. I've clicked on a couple sites. Um, I think through Facebook that would be like local news pages, like it would be xbc.com. And it looks legit for what a local news station would be. And, you know, my friends have read the article, they're sharing it, they're commenting on it. And I open it up and it's like I got malvertising. And that's where I was. I was thinking like, wow, this is just a spoof spot, a site. This is a scam site. But from what I'm hearing from you is that that actually probably was the legit site. They're just not aware that they have malvertising on it that's hijacking the page like that. Is that accurate? You're yeah, yeah, you're exactly right. So yeah, I mean, listen, the, the legitimate sites and you know, Comscore top 10, top 100, mm -hmm. top 250 sites all get impacted by this stuff. Um, you, know, you talked about Facebook. Facebook is an interesting use case because um, we actually just announced our Q3 data, which um, we said that like, about, I think it was about 50% of all threats that we blocked uh, across our uh, threat network in Q3 actually happened within the Facebook embedded browser. And yes. so, as you know, when you're in Facebook and you're scrolling news stories and you click on one of those stories, it doesn't take you out to Safari. It actually keeps you no. in an embedded browser within the Facebook yep. app. You now, have to click the options and hit uh, op like opening Chrome because I'm Android. So, yeah. Okay. So the, so the bad actors uh, have, have really latched on to that as a place to hide. Um, first off, it's cookie Are they traffic. doing that then uh, through Facebook or are they doing that through the site or is it the Facebook browser? They're, they're basically just buying that traffic. And they're okay. targeting traffic that has the refer of Facebook, right? So that they know that it's within the Facebook browser. And so, uh, so what you'll see is um, bad actors will, will target that supply one because it's probably cheaper. Uh, it's cookie-less, mm -hmm. right? So uh, it, it's cheaper traffic. Uh, two, it's plentiful. There's lots of it. Yeah. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, most importantly, it is a very uh, hard to re reproduce problem in those browsers um, such that they're able to hide. And so they yeah. can, their campaign setup can last longer. They won't get caught as fast. Um, and so it creates that perfect storm for where a bad actor can go and hide and get engagements. Yeah, yeah. You know, now that I'm thinking about it, Facebook browser, it just inside the app has to be probably one of the most used browsers on mobile devices because mm -hmm. it, it's used so much. I mean, very rarely will I hit the open up in Chrome button. And 
I would say most times when I'm on my phone and I see the malware, uh, you're absolutely right. It is happening in Facebook. I can't think of one instance where I've opened up the an article in Chrome or something like that on my Android that I've had that same issue. So that's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, again, like all brow all browsers are vulnerable. It's not that Facebook is any more vulnerable than Chrome. Uh, it just so happens that like, again, go back to that performance advertiser mindset. These bad actors are looking very specifically to buy traffic that they know that they can have a profitable engagement with. Mm -hmm. um, one of the unique things, we haven't even talked about this, but one of the unique things about our software um, is that we make it unprofitable for them. So we, we knew that yeah. when we built this product um, that we didn't want to play this cat and mouse game, which is like, if, if, if they go and try to buy something and you block them before they buy it, it's almost like a free at bat. And then they get to go yeah. and try and buy it somewhere else or change their URL or do whatever they want to do to try and get through your controls. We felt that the only way to stop this thing was to actually do it on live traffic at runtime when we already knew that it's a real user, real device, real network. And so right. our code is a single line of JavaScript that runs in real time and behaviorally analyzes the code as it executes on the page. And as a bad actor or any, any person buys an ad on a page, we're analyzing what that code is doing at runtime. And when we see that ad start to try to break out of that ad and create a, a fake click or to create a, you know, a transparent overlay where it clicks itself on an on touch event or that sort of thing, that's where we prevent the malicious JavaScript from actually executing. One of the key things here is, is the bad actor has bought the ad. So he is pot committed. He has spent his money. And because it, we prevent the malicious JS from executing, he never really gets to that landing page that says, congratulations, you want a Walmart gift card. And therefore he gets no ROI. And so right. bad actor then actually as a performance advertiser, performance advertisers want to spend money where they know they can get engagements. And if they're not getting engagements, what do performance advertisers do? They actually right. block the site, right? And so mm -hmm. we've kind of created that uh, negative incentive for the, them to continue to attack where our uh, software is in place. And you're making them spend money. That sounds incredible. That's fun. <laughs> publisher, get, publisher gets paid. User experience is preserved. Bad actor gets no ROI. It's like the triple whammy. So with your company, how many, like how many clients do you guys have, if you don't mind me asking? <laughs> like maybe well, we're, we're running we're, this platform. We're a cybersecurity company. Like we don't, we generally don't talk about okay. our, like who our clients are and, and how many right, of them. Right, right. Um, what we have publicly disclosed, we have, you know, like there's 7 million sites that our code runs on. Tens okay. of billions of, of impressions. That's uh, what I was trying to find out. The seven million sites. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, listen, think of it as like, I, I would imagine some of the news sites that you would have hit over the last week uh, mm -hmm. has our code running on. Some of the sites where you would go to consume, you know, sports content or, uh, you know, entertainment content. We're across, uh, you know, I would say census of the internet level mm -hmm. websites uh, and anything from Comscore top 10 publishers all the way to the body and tail of, of the internet. Um, so yeah. lots of customers. Well, I mean, the question that I was trying to get to with how many customers you have run in this, you said 7 million sites. So that's a, a pretty hefty number, especially considering that, you know, a site like Shark Bite Biz for right now, we don't even have ads on the site. We're not needed. So you have a lot of the top publishers around the globe that are running running your your solution that has to have a positive impact on you know the whole global environment i think 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is an ecosystem play. I, I remember when I first spoke at a conference about a year and a half ago um, and, and someone said to me, um, Hey, if your software does what you say it does and it pushes the bad actors to advertise on sites that don't have your protection, is that that good for, you know, everyone else? And I said, well, mm-hmm. I mean, I guess it is if they all go and get our software, I think like, ultimately, don't we want to freeze these guys out? Like, ultimately, don't we want to make it unprofitable? Isn't that the real way to destroy these guys and and their business and make them go away? You know, if you're trying to exterminate rodents from your house, like you want to get rid of all of them. And so for us, yes, like the more, like we have this network effect of our businesses that the more sites that, Mm -hmm. that have our software, the, the like it's just going to continue to push these guys you know the, into the a bigger into won't that yeah. also force them to innovate more as well too to be more dangerous <laughs> I, I don't know necessarily more dangerous but i think innovate right. absolutely and that that's what the bad actors have done over time right like so we're not the first company that ever came out to try and solve this problem mm-hmm. there's many folks that over the course of the last 10 or 15 years have tried to solve this problem the unfortunate part is the bad actors out innovated most of those companies and most of those methodologies. The methodologies in the early days were like offline scanning environments and the bad actors figured out that if they could detect it, that they were in an offline environment, then they wouldn't execute. Uh, the next right. class of folks that went to solve the problem were focusing on the URLs, right? And we all know that mm-hmm. uh, you can change your URL every two minutes. And so uh, they were taking those URLs and putting them on a block list. Well, the block list is only as good as how updated it is. Right. And then the reality is, is these block lists get massive and they create latency. And so right. we, we figured that that's not, you know, the most effective approach. And that's why we went with this behavioral approach, which was it's not dependent on URLs and it's not dependent obviously mm-hmm. on an offline scan. It's actually only when the guy really wants to like deliver his impacts, which is when you're online and when you're on a real device in a real network. So, you know, that's where we feel like the behavioral solution really uh, attacks uh, the methods that they're using to break out, not the signature of the URL, which is easily changeable. Yeah, no, this is this is great. You are fighting the good fight. And I'm sure, you know, with over 7 million sites running your software, every single, I, I'd be pretty certain that almost everybody that's watching or listening to this podcast has probably had a positive impact because of your solution. And that's Let's pretty- yeah, I hope so. Um, so another area I wanted to talk about really, really quick um, is your business, from what I understand, it was acquired by AOL and Verizon, essentially, right? My last business, yes. Yeah, your last business? Okay. Uh, with Millennial Media, right? Yeah, Millennial Media was acquired by Verizon, which Ver- Verizon also acquired AOL, and then Verizon also right. acquired Yahoo. So at the end, yeah. you know, at the end of my tenure there, I was leading this business unit that that helped publishers monetize, uh, and it was basically the AOL, the Yahoo, the Millennial Media, and a whole bunch of other startups that that AOL and, and Yahoo had acquired. Um, okay, so yeah, that was the business unit that I was operating. Yeah, yeah, no, I what triggered me to ask that was just because I remember you were saying back, uh, I think in the '90s, you were working with Verizon, right? So you essentially went full circle there. <laughs> I did. I went back. I went back to the mothership, uh, and it was a great experience. Um, yeah, like I, you know, listen. My first job at Verizon back in the day, like I could have done that for the rest of my life and been so happy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, doing innovative things. Uh, you know, bleeding edge. Um, 
But, uh, you know, I went on a little bit of a journey uh, on an entrepreneur's journey mm-hmm. for, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, 10 years, 12 years or something yeah. like that. And, and then I ended up back at the mothership uh, yeah, and I stayed yeah, three years. I, like I, I had three great years after acquisition. And then, uh, you know, it was time to, you know, flex the, you know, stretch the entrepreneurial muscles and get yeah, back yeah. into it. Yeah, no, we love talking about the individuals on this show as well, too, and how the individuals have made it. And I wanted to come back to this topic real quick because you've had two companies that were acquired by major companies. I mean, you have Capcom and then you have the AOL slash Verizon acquisition. When you started your businesses, okay, did you start these businesses with, hey, I'm going to ramp these businesses up and then hope that someone buys it or like, what was your mentality when you launched both those businesses that got acquired? So, uh, so I'll talk about the video game business first. I mean, I don't think you can mm-hmm. launch any business with the hope that someone acquires it. Obviously I think you're, you're launching a business with the hope that you're going to build a sustainable, viable business that is going to be profitable right. at some point. In the, in the term, mm-hmm. the business on the video game side, we bootstrapped that. So it was me and two other guys. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and it just, it so happened that like when, when we had a couple of these intellectual properties, like, you know, who wants to be a millionaire and are you smarter than a fifth grader that we actually had really good traction. And at the time, this is before the iPhone, we had distribution agreements with all of the wireless carriers. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that was appealing to, to someone and they were willing to pay, uh, a reasonably good price for us to, you know, go and continue the journey. And as I said, I stayed at Capcom for four years after the acquisition, which was yeah. like, we were still in build mode. We like, we mm-hmm. launched Murph's village in that time that I was there and, and a whole bunch of other games, uh, street yeah. fighter on the iPhone. Um, yeah. but yeah, like, so, um, I, I would say like, you don't really necessarily build a business with the hope that, it, that, that it's going to get acquired, but ultimately, um, you know, for me, like right now in the business that I'm in, uh, it's a startup. And so right. uh, I made way more cash when I was working at a big time job uh, mm-hmm. than I am right now. But what I have is ownership and equity. And ultimately, I hope that that's going to be very valuable someday to someone, whether, right. whether that's, you know, at Millennial Media, I wasn't uh, the earliest employee there. I was employee number 75. But wow. our equity was worth something, not because we got acquired, but because we built a long-term sustainable business that we actually took public on the New York Stock Exchange. And so there's various different ways uh, and paths to uh, liquidity. Um, you know, I think it's just, if you focus on building the right thing that people like and people are willing to pay for, uh, you'll control your destiny. Yeah, no, that that's great entrepreneurial device, uh, advice, device. I'm thinking about mobile devices. Uh, so last question I have for you is, um, we've talked a lot, uh, a ton with you. This has been awesome. It's been extremely informative for everybody. Uh, what are some of the latest trends right now with the malicious, malicious advertising, attacks across SSPs, DSPs, browsers, devices, what are you seeing? What can our listeners watch out for? Uh, you know, the, the data that we just launched, if you go to clean.io, uh, you, you can see our most recent smart report that we just released with our, our Q3 data. Um, you know, typical phenomenons that we've seen, uh, I talked a little bit about Facebook and how that has right. been, you know, been a, 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 I would say a hot spot for attacks. Um, 
you know, the, the patterns of, of behavior of bad actors, generally speaking, mm-hmm. we see this as like a weekend sort of thing. So, uh, and most folks ask like, why do bad actors do this stuff on weekends? You know, generally speaking, that's when the ad operations people that run these monetization businesses aren't sitting in front of their PC. So they try and oh, you know wow. attack when people aren't looking, um, a whole bunch of those sort of things. Um, you know, I, I would say that uh, we've also seen a, a Um, more and more attacks happen outside of the ads ecosystem. So because we're code on page, Mm -hmm. we can see what's happening. What we're seeing are uh, other attack vectors like client-side injections, um, where uh, they're happening from either, you know, compromised Wi-Fi or or browser extensions that are compromised that are sitting resident on your device. Um, And then we've also seen this kind of uh, phenomenon of cloaking, uh, where the bad actors are cloaking either their images or their landing page URLs and oh. swapping those out and, you know, throwing in like Bitcoin scams and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. big death ads and all that sort of stuff. So, you know, bad actors are, are keeping us on our toes, but, uh, you know, we're, uh, as a cybersecurity company, you got to kind of be a little bit paranoid uh, all the time uh, yeah. <laughs> and assume, assume that they're trying to, you know, break in and, uh, you know, always be on your toes. Okay. Hey, this has been amazing. Thank you so much for your time. How can people reach out to you? So if you want to uh, engage with our company, clean.io is where you'd find mm-hmm. our company. Uh, if you want to find me, uh, hit me on LinkedIn. Um, you can find me, Matt Gillis. Uh, and uh, if you want to send me an email, matt at clean.io. Perfect. Hey, thank you so much for your time today. This has been amazing. And uh, once this pandemic thingamajig is all over, I'd love to get you back on sometime next year to kind of talk about what the trends are post-pandemic. Listen, we've got some cool products on the e-commerce side that are coming up. And one of the oh. biggest trends in the pan one of the biggest trends in the pandemic has been that we've seen basically five years of what we like, would have expected would take five years mm-hmm. on the e-commerce side, uh, really compress into like the last nine months of growth, right? Like yeah. Where e-commerce has just kind of rocket ship and taken off. Um, I talked a little bit about client-side oh, yeah. injections and how we're seeing those uh, kind yeah. of uh, manifest. Um, and one of the things that you may be aware of is there's this thing called Honey uh, or another thing called Wikibuy, which help yeah. consumers save money by automated uh, in an automated fashion, uh, throwing in a whole bunch of promo codes at checkout and saving you 10, 20, 30, even 50% off of your shopping cart. Um, right. We think that's pretty destructive. Uh, and so what we do, if you think about our business on the ad side, we help publishers uh, preserve revenue and preserve reputation and preserve user experience. We're going to do that same thing on the e-commerce side. So okay. if you're interested in the e-commerce side, if you want to go to uh, www.blockcouponextensions.com, uh, we actually are in closed beta uh, and we give e-commerce merchants that same sort of protection and peace of mind that our publisher partners get, which is they put our code on their page and we prevent all of these malicious uh, and untrusted uh, you know, uh, code extensions from jamming in promo codes at checkout. Saves them a ton oh, of revenue. Oh, that's pretty we, good, right? We've got to touch on this topic. This interview is not ending yet. Oh, <laughs> uh, but wait, you just, but wait, there's more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but wait, there's more. We're in overtime here. So why? Okay, so I can understand from a vendor standpoint why you think that that is destructive, but oftentimes it does benefit the consumer giving them a deal. 
why would you want to actively block that for businesses? I'm interested. So in if, this. yeah, I mean, I, I would like just take a step back. Like we sometimes right. we got to take our consumer hat off and and right. like go into the the business owner's hat. And you mm -hmm. know, I, I would say uh, one vertical that I think has been obviously very deeply entrenched in coupons is like the grocery market, right? And so you right. think about you go to the grocery store. And, uh, you know, some people are coupon cutters and that inspires them to go and buy the item. And when they get to checkout, they hand that coupon to the, you know, checkout guy or gal and they scan that coupon and you save, you know, a dollar on your dozen eggs or whatever that is, whatever mm -hmm. inspired you to go to the store. How do you think Safeway or Giant or Loblaws or wherever you live, those mm -hmm. grocery stores would react to someone as you're at checkout? someone standing beside you as a consumer and handing you a mitt full of coupons that saved you 30 or 40% off of your grocery order. I don't think the grocery store would be that excited about someone coming into the grocery store and standing there and saving everybody and eroding their revenue and their margins. Now you're right. right. As a consumer, you'd be like, I'd love to save that, but I just don't think that's the intention of, of why coupons exist or why promo codes exist. Promo codes exist to drive incremental sales. Um, merchants will work with social media influencers and they'll say, uh, you know, if you're a social media influencer, here's a custom code that says like, you know, Kim K 20 for Kim Kardashian. And they hope mm -hmm. that Kim K tells everybody to go and buy this cosmetics thing. Right. By the way, if it inspires people to go do it and use her code, great. But what they didn't intend was for that code to be applied to every single consumer that came through at checkout because that will really mess up their marketing attribution, that will really mess up their revenue and their profitability. So yeah. that's really what we're doing is like, we're trying to give those controls. Like we believe that if you own your website, you mm -hmm. should be able to control the code that executes on your website. It's your website, right. you, you deserve those, that, those, that ability to control. So the reason we give you know some of the biggest sites on the internet that control to protect from malicious ads is they want their users to have a good experience on their site. In the right. e-commerce world, it's very similar, right? Like, you know, I think that e-commerce merchants deserve to be able to own and control what happens on their site. And if they want to use promo codes as a part of their marketing strategy, they should be able to do that with confidence and know mm -hmm. that it's going to drive incremental and not just uh, stealing attribution from sales that already would have happened. Okay. No, that's an interesting standpoint. I will say as a consumer, there's been plenty of times where I've bought something just because of having the discount. Whereas if that discount wasn't there, I probably would have just waited until I got a discount or got it on sale somewhere else. So, I mean, it, it is a, a good valid point though, what you're bringing up. And also too, just want to validate the, uh, you, you said about the exponential e-commerce growth. So as I said earlier, my day job, I work with Vision 33. We do ERP for small to mid-sized businesses with SAP Business One. And typically, I mean, right now we're getting a ton of phone calls of companies that are like, hey, back in February, we were doing 50 orders a month e-commerce. Now we're doing 20,000. And we have no way to handle that. And these are companies that if they went through a typical company life cycle with expected growth, they'd probably be two years or so before they actually would have had to call us. And the pandemic, um, you know, has changed it to where instead of selling in stores or 
you know, at events, stuff like that. They're doing it all through e-com and it, it, it's created a, a big rush with companies like that. So I, I think, um, you know, a lot of those companies, they have, you know, smaller margins, stuff like that, the smaller companies. I think, uh, you know, your coupon blocker um, service could actually help them preserve those margins so that they can grow and then buy my software. Yeah, well, exactly. <laughs> and, and I think, no, really, it's, it's about giving them control of their business. Um, yeah. You know, we, we've, we're in closed beta right now. We've got 20 merchants on board all the way from like cosmetics companies to interior design companies, to sporting goods, to direct to consumer food and beverage and all that sort of stuff. And everyone has like similar yet, you know, very different challenges. So some folks are actually spending money on podcasts and they're using yeah. unique codes for podcasts. And guess what? Honey then scrapes those podcast codes up and they give them to everybody, which you know effectively invalidates, you know, how effective their marketing was with that specific podcast. One interior right. design uh, company that does wallpapers and drapes and rugs and all that sort of stuff, you know, they told us that they would give an exclusive uh, coupon code to interior designers because they would want their business. And they actually were giving them 50% mm -hmm. off. And Honey was scraping those codes up. And literally, uh, you know, a code that was intended only for interior designers was getting, you know, delivered to everybody on the internet that had Honey on their PC. Um, yeah. It actually caused them a massive customer service issue because, what they had to do was like, they couldn't sustainably allow every order that came through to get 50% off. And so what they had to do was like, they actually had to cancel orders. They actually had to call wow. customers and say, listen, we can't honor that because that code wasn't intended for you. And so a lot wow. of what we're doing is really trying to help them streamline their operations and make their lives easier and, and uh, you know, let them focus on the things that they, you know, they, mm -hmm. we don't think that they should wake up Monday morning and have to chase around. What was the promo code that got out of control on the weekend because of honey? Uh, and by the way, right, right, Honey, right. By, Honey was acquired by PayPal for four and a half billion dollars. Um, Wikibuy has been acquired uh, by Capital, Capital One. Capital One, All right? Yep. And so I use uh, I, I use Rakuten, but I did that. Uh, I do that because not necessarily for their coupon codes. I've done it because of the referral fees that they end up paying us back from the commissions that they get. And a lot of times yeah. I go to their search engine. I look, I see, what do I want to buy? Oh, okay. You want this guitar or whatever it may be. And, you know, I'll make my purchase off of that. You know, I don't know. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Hey, well, listen, I think when, when it's driving an incremental sale, awesome. When yeah. it's taking attribution for a sale that would have already happened, yeah. I don't think that's that great for merchants. And so it costs them revenue loss. Totally agree. You know, cost them, they got to pay affiliate fees, all that sort of stuff. Mm -hmm. so it just erodes. Um, and listen, oh, yeah. we like, we all, we all like if, if the world is moving so quickly to e-commerce, don't we want it to be in healthy ecosystem so that everybody actually can, you know, have, run profitable businesses? That's the goal here. So, yeah. Yeah. so that's where we're at. We got 20 customers in beta and, uh, you know, we're uh, going to go to GA probably uh, in early Q1. And, uh, but if anybody wants to find out information, it's uh, blockcouponextensions.com. Okay. Hey, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Uh, we've done almost 50 episodes here in Truck Pipe Biz, and this is the first overtime segment I had. So I love uh, it. Thank you so much. This has been awesome. Anything else? No, listen, uh, no, rock and roll. No. I hope everyone's doing well and staying healthy. Oh, thank you so much, Matt. And I'm looking forward to get you back sometime next year too. Cheers. Awesome. Thanks for having me. Wow. That was amazing. I really found that convo just so, so interesting. Matt really does know his industry. 
first, remember, if you found this interview, if you found this episode helpful, do us a favor, smash that subscribe, smash that like button, regardless of where you're consuming this episode at, YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you are. We are too. So make sure you smash that subscribe button. And if you really, really, really want to hook us up, please share this podcast, this episode, share it out to your network. And let's try to get Matt Gillis and Shark Bite Biz trending. Now let's get back to Matt. This really was an educational conversation for me. I mean, I've got to give a shout out first to his career progression talk about just really finding your path going with the flow it's like one thing leads to the next and he's had a couple successful careers under him so you know during our chat though like i was saying i really did learn a ton and i found it particularly interesting when we were talking about Facebook and some of the the issues that I've had when I was clicking on links and, you know, just getting some really crazy malvertising results, you know, stuff like that. So I really love when I can use real life examples of my own of what I'm experiencing and get an expert opinion, because if I see it, then kind of confused about it. Chances are many of you out there are also feeling the same way. Another key focal point to me was just about how much this all affects the advertising industry. I mean, think about it. If you're a publisher, okay, viewers are getting a crappy experience because of the ads you have on your site. And it might not even be your fault. I mean, it's been hijacked by these bad actors. So they're going to be thinking, oh, that .com site? Yeah, it's scammy, and it's really going to prevent you from earning revenue just because of that, plus all the people that they're out there telling. You know, and it also hurts the legit advertisers as well, because people then become skeptical of real ads, and it really does become a lose-lose situation for everybody involved, and just proof of why companies like Clean.io can really help the good people reclaim the net again. This was a fun video, some great, great discussion. What did you all think? Today's discussion question, really, really simple. Tell us about the last time you clicked on something you probably shouldn't have. <laughs> Seriously, I would have loved to hear those stories. Tell us what happened. Let's discuss. Lastly, do you want to be a guest in the show? If so, you got a good business story to tell just like Matt Gillis did? Shoot me out an email, david at sharkbitefizz.com. I would love to hear from you all and have everybody on the platform. So, as you all know, I'm David Strasser. This is Shark Bite Fizz, and we'll see you all again next episode. Cheers. Thank you for listening to Shark Bite Fizz. We hope you got some insightful info from this podcast. Be sure to subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and visit us on the web at www.sharkbitebiz.com. How has business changed for you in the 20s? Email us at podcast at sharkbitebiz.com so you can join us and share your story.